today I welcome Pamela Jordan, president of the Idlewild Arts Foundation in the USA. In this episode, I discuss the importance of the arts in education, the impact of arts for happiness and well-being, keeping the arts alive during COVID-19, and Pamela's own podcast series, Celebrating the Arts. I want to talk about your podcast series because you recently launched it, One World, One Idyll World. You've traded places and now you're in the hot seat with me. I do promise that this will be more friendly than sitting down with Piers Morgan. So, and thankfully he's back over here, but again, he's left his current job. What inspired you to start the series and what do you want it to achieve? It was March 2019, of course, when the pandemic began to spread throughout the United States and we had to send our students home. And it was at that time that we were sending our students home to five continents, 35 countries, and 195 cities. I realized, um, I knew, but I, I realized at that point the impact that our alumni and our students really have around the world. And so to conclude that school year, we launched the One World, One Idlewild, the showcase. And the idea behind that was to really showcase alums and, and faculty, students, friends of Idlewild Arts, and really show the impact that we were making around the globe. That was a very, very successful online showcase. We reached over 2,000 unique visitors to our website. We ran a 24-hour showcase. And uh, we really saw the impact and the success of it. So out of that then came the One World, One Night of Wild podcast series. And what I'm really looking to do with that is to engage leaders in education and outside of education, but really who somewhere in their life, the arts have played a role. It may not even be that they are art makers, but maybe art was very prominent in their home, a love of their parent, and really show through that creative process or through that art making process, the impact that it has made on their lives as leaders and therefore the impact they're making through their organizations. We've had, I don't know, six or seven episodes so far, and they've been fascinating to me to hear how art has shaped the lives of leaders. It's a great podcast series. You say you want to highlight the work of citizen artists whose careers have been shaped by art. How has your career been shaped by art? I am just very fortunate. My mother loved music and um, so much so that when she was growing up, early 20s, and she didn't have access to art, but somehow she fell in love with music and she would pretend to play a cardboard box as if it was her piano. She loved it that much. And when she was able to, she took lessons and just made it a part of her life. So it was always in my home. And I never considered, frankly, I never considered doing anything outside of the arts. I loved it. I loved the pursuit of it. And I think that that's how my life was shaped. When you study the arts, when you study music, it is about pursuing your passion for that. It's not about reaching something that you know, is good enough or, you know, that you're pleased with. You can be pleased with what you're offering, but you always want to go deeper. You always want to find a deeper meaning. You know, over the years, that has served me. I didn't seek to be in administration. I just sought to continue to help the communities that I was in play a role in those communities. And I know that I learned that through art. I learned that through art making, through music making. And I learned that through my mother's passion to to really instill music and, and the arts in all of her children and all of her nieces and nephews. How important is the arts viewed in America as a subject area that people and children and students need to pursue? Or is it always seen as a secondary to some of the more classic academic subjects? Well, I think it's definitely secondary to 
to the classics, to a traditional academic education. There's no doubt about that. And I am very, very aware of how privileged I have been in my life to have the arts so essential. We are increasingly aware of the role that creativity has to play in all of our lives, in, in all of our, our, our business endeavors. Um, I think it was back in 2006 or 2008 when IBM did a, a study of CEOs about the, you know, the, the most important attributes that a leader will need in the 21st century. And the number one attribute they found that a leader would need was creativity. And so people are now interested in the creative process. They might not at all be interested in making artists, right, in making musicians, but, but the creative process and what it can lead to and how it can play a role in, in helping us think creatively and innovative about the challenges that face us today, I think is finding itself more into the mainstream. I'm not in public school education, so I can't really speak to that so directly. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the IBM study. I mean, there was one done by the World Economic Forum that said by 2020, you know, employers were looking for creativity, critical thinking and problem solving. You know, they were the three major traits and skills they were looking for young men and women to come out of education to have. And that absolutely has to shape the way that we change education, because I think sometimes we put it in a box, what creative means. Oh, does it mean drawing or singing or dancing, performing? You know, it's a very kind of visual medium, you know, from accounting to being a barrister, you know, to being a professional athlete. They all have creative flair to be able to do their jobs. Do you think there's more communication needs to be done to support arts and the understanding of creativity beyond the traditional subjects? I definitely do think that. I also deeply believe in the younger generations, you know, we're talking about some of the older movies and things. I believe in this younger generation that really is embracing the arts in a very different way. You know, when I was coming up, you had, a, you know, a group of people who told you if your art was right or not, or if your process was right or not. And this is a very different generation, you know, who crowdsourcing or, you know, the way they're critiquing each other's work to add the value to it. I'm not saying that they're making what I would consider the best type of art, but they are pursuing their passion. They are being very creative. I'm very encouraged by this generation and how they're saying we're not going to rely on someone else to tell us that this has value or to tell us that, that this is important or that this is creative, that they're going to do that for themselves and for one another. I'm very encouraged by that. We talk about innovation and the arts absolutely does evolve. And it's not just the classic stage. And, you know, we've seen film, we've seen artists change, we've seen digital currency move, you know, the, the non-fungible tokens, the NFTs that now digital artists now are commanding. Majority of the world do not understand and it's very niche. Do you cover any of those type of innovations at your school when you start to talk to your young students and artists about their passion? I wouldn't say we really cover it. We certainly give a lot of opportunities through some of our unique programs. And certainly when you're working, you know, as close as our students are as a community, um, especially as a boarding community, you may touch on these subjects. But one of the things that I think it's important to keep in mind is when you are afforded the, the amount of time that we are with our students, right? We're boarding school is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're in this remote location. And so you really get to delve deeply into the passion that has brought them to this school. But you have to remember also that these are teenagers. These are young adults who are, you know, really shaping their view for what will come next. What are their post-secondary school 
options and choices. And so as narrow as an education in the arts may seem, it really isn't. It's to help them find themselves, find their own passions. And so we want to give them enough so they can make informed, educated decisions about what's next. Some stay in the arts, some do not stay in the arts. Through their pursuing this and pursuing their interests, you never know where it's going to take them and how they're going to express, you know, that creative process in whatever careers that they choose. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned um, the students who have a passion and that that's every teacher's and educator's role is to find that spark that's going to ignite a passion for life on whatever it is. And with the arts, there's always a passion, it's a feeling, it's emotion, and you can't ever, you know, take that away from the person and the arts. I'm interested in your comment about obviously some don't pursue the arts when they leave school. Why do you think this is? Are they driven by parental advice because there's no money in the arts? You know, the classic line, you're, gonna, you're not going to make any money. Only a few do that. So why bother? Or is it because they are, again, driven by money and they have other needs? Or are there other reasons that maybe they don't carry on? I think that our students have to believe that they're artists. That's what brings them to our door. And I think that's always the way for an artist. You think about it, they're always putting themselves out there. They're always taking risks. They're always following something that someone else may be saying, why are you doing this? This is outside of the lines. Maybe they're getting some support. Obviously, our students receive a lot of support because their parents are supporting them to come to a boarding school. But they really are, they're risk takers from the very beginning, trying to get closer to something that is a passion of theirs. They're pursuing that passion. When you're 13 and 14 and 15 years old, it can look like one thing. It can look like drawing. (laughs) It can look like playing an instrument. But as they mature and as they learn, they also may develop other interests. So, you know, they may leave here wanting to be a neuroscientist, you know, so they want to go to university and, you know, study that. It doesn't mean that art is no longer a part of their life, but they are continuing to pursue their passion. I honestly don't think that it's ever, in our case, parents, you know, sort of pressuring them to, what are you going to make money? These are students who have found their community, right? They've found their environment that allows them to thrive, but so have their parents, right? These are parents who, by and large, step out of the mainstream, step out from what their, their peers are doing and, you know, saying, going into traditional careers and so forth and saying, no, I believe in, in my child. They may or may not have the talent or I may not understand that talent, but I understand the desire to pursue that passion. They're sort of lock, stock and barrel for whatever the student wants to pursue. And I think they also learn along the way that they will be successful in what they pursue. Because at the end of the day, you can either play that violin or you cannot. And if you cannot, nobody wants to hear it, right? Whatever it is you're offering. And so they have to learn that. They have to learn, not not this is good enough, this is my grade, or this is an A, I achieved it, but I want to move you through this performance. I want to engage you through this piece of artwork. And they can take that into any career they go. You know, it also touches on another thing that I think about is that, you know, when I was growing up, they asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? There was one thing. And if you found yourself veering from that, you somehow were getting lost. I think of a book by Dr. Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot called The The Third Chapter, Life Between 50 and 75, where she interviewed all of these people, you know, who found themselves what they call going home, going back to the thing that they love right, that they they really wanted to engage in. I think that's when you study the arts, 
you you learn to do that no matter what where the interest takes you or where the career takes you and it may take you into several careers which i think is really beautiful again from this generation they don't think about what they want to be when they grow up they think about simply being very powerful i completely share your views about where kids see themselves and what they want to do because that's a question you always ask a child you ask them when they're you know in kindergarten when they go through the primary years you ask them, you know, what do you want to be? And there's always this wide-eyed curiosity. It's always vibrant and fun. And then we get it taught out of us. And then we get on a career ladder. And then all we're driven by is mortgage and healthcare and, you know, raising a family because this is what we're meant to do. And you lose yourself. And I do really wholeheartedly agree with you when, when you're a believer in the arts, the arts never die. And actually that, that keeps you going, even if you have to veer off and conform with society. The arts is such a strong grounding that, that keeps you alive and it's very soulful. Um, I want to talk about your role. So you are the president and head of school at the Dilwild Arts Foundation and School. Tell me what sets it apart from other independent schools and what your role is there. Okay, that's a loaded question here. So, well, first let me say my role now is solely president. So we now have a head of school, a wonderful head of school, Marianne Kent Stoll. I really served for four years as both president and head of school here. And prior to being here, uh, I was head of school at Chicago Academy for the Arts, which is another independent school. So I'm really loving being in this role of president. And but it's very unusual for an independent school. Increasingly, you see this sort of dual role, a separate head of school from a president. But as the demands on independent schools come with the funding that's needed, and especially the funding that's needed, the resources that are are needed to provide the educational programs as we move so far into the technological needs, we really find ourselves with that outward-facing role, right? And Idlewild Arts has moved into that space by having a president and a head of school. There's a marketing firm that I just love, Crane Meta Marketing. They talk about a school finding its category of one. So Idlewild Arts is an arts high school, And I believe in the United States, probably every major metropolitan city has an art school. They're public schools. There are only four independent art schools around the country. Only three of them are boarding. You ask the question, what's unique about us, right? And so when you look at the boarding school community as an art school, the only arts boarding school on the West Coast, we are nestled 6,000 feet in the San Jacinto Mountains. We're on 200 acres of land, you know, spread out with 80 or 90 buildings all nestled in. And so what is unique about Idlewild Arts? And you're not passing our school on your way anywhere. Idlewild is a small town of about 3,000 residents. We're the largest employer, if you will, in town. So this is a destination for people, um, for our students. And As a result, students have the opportunity, young people have the opportunity to make art in many corners of this country, right? I talked about the public schools that are all around. But when you come to Idlewild Art, you're nestled in this remote, secluded environment. You're able to engage deeply, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You're living with young artists from all around the world, literally from, you know, 35, 37 countries your roommate, you you don't speak the same language, you have to find a way to communicate, and it's your passion for the arts that do that. And I like to describe it as our students are not only interested in in, in making art and, and making music, which of course they are, but they're interested in making meaning through that art. They're interested in 
how their art helps them go out and make a difference back in their community or where they choose to be in the world. Our location and the community that we have within this location really creates our category of one, I would say, from the other art school opportunities that students may have. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. Could you bottle up what you do and open up other schools? Is there a, would you say that students and families choose you because of the destination, the location? It sounds idyllic of where you are. Or is it the curriculum and the programs that you run? Are they the big draw to it all? Or is it really just a perfect recipe of both of these things colliding with the right talented people you've got inside the school that really deliver it? Could you set up another school with exactly the same vision and purpose and deliver the same program to other people? You cannot bottle up Ida Wild Arts. Our location, the educational program, you actually can see mirrored many places. In, in most art schools that I know, actually in all art schools that I know, their academic classes are sometime in the morning, their arts classes are sometime in the afternoon, they have performances that go well into the evening, their performances all weekend. That is part and parcel to a secondary school dedicated to the arts. But you can't take away from Idlewild Arts what our location does. When our, when our students, when our alums are asked, what is something that they'll miss about the school? They talk about nature. You know, when you think about particularly wherever they're going, they likely will not be in nature. They'll have the distractions of their internet and, and mobile phones and so forth. And, and they don't have those distractions here, really, <laughs> mainly because their, their phones don't work so well here, but they don't have those kinds of distractions. And what that allows them to do for themselves and with each other, um, you really can't bottle up and take somewhere else. But if you just look on the page, if you just compare one school to another, which of course our families do as they're researching us, they research other schools, particularly if they're looking to come to the United States. But they choose Idlewild Arts for its deep curriculum, deep artistic curriculum, preparation for traditional education, if it turns out the student wants to continue in that direction, you know, for college, but also very much for our location and the destination that they find in Idlewild. Alums speak about it for the rest of their lives. I've been here for seven years, and as I meet alums, they always talk about that sense of place. And so I think you really can't separate that from what we do and, and the way we do what we do here at Idlewild Arts. COVID has turned the educational world upside down and forced schools to reconfigure teaching and learning in a kind of baptism of fire. Classrooms are emptied and the arts went dark. But artists by nature push boundaries and embrace possibilities of spontaneity and creativity. How did Idlewild teachers transition from the in-person to the at-home instruction for the arts? One of the things that was interesting, maybe the most interesting thing about it was everybody had to move online, some with success, some not with success. Our challenge was meeting our students where they were, which was all around the world, right? Every time zone imaginable. And our teachers did just a heroic job in taking their lessons and putting them online, but also meeting those students where they were. Meeting, having classes at five in the morning, you know, to teach those students. And then maybe turning around and having a private music lesson at six or seven in the evening. It was a real dedication. Our teachers, you know, they are our essential workers. And there's no way that we could have 
done this, even imagined this without the commitment they had to reach our students where they were. One of the things that I thought was also so interesting, again, being a boarding school, you know, our students, they get to go away from their families. They miss them very much, but they get to immerse seven days a week in their art. They get to go into the dance studios and into the theaters where they didn't have any of that. And how the teachers got very creative and helped them get very comfortable to have their kitchen counter become the ballet bar. I was speaking with one student and he was taking his private voice lesson. He was taking it in his closet because the acoustics were better there. And what the teachers really did, you know, the way they described it to me was do no harm. Meet these students where they are understand that what they're going through, how they're having to move back home and, you know, attend to things that are now not a distraction, but just life that they now have to wrestle with that they didn't when they were on campus. Our teachers just were extraordinary in the ways that they did to reach those students, whether it was working individually with someone or holding classes with someone, they made it all possible, them and our wonderful uh, head of school, Marianne Kinstall, and really those ones who were working directly with the students. They just did an incredible job to meet them. Yeah, and they all fall with, you know, very similar traits of you, which is about service, you know, and it was their commitment and dedication to enabling the education still to carry on to all those children. We all know how extraordinarily difficult the last 12 to 15 months have been. We've all had Zoom fatigue, online fatigue. You know, there's been a lot of mental health problems. And I don't think we've hit the, the real problem yet. I think this is, this is a time bomb that is coming. But let's look at the positives. What were the silver linings of the last 12 months that you've taken away that maybe you'll include into your new, your new arts programs or the way that you teach that COVID has forced? One of the things I think about, you know, we've talked about, we've flipped the classroom for years. But I think now the notion of flipping the classroom, the notion of the students, you know, working on their own, learning that lesson, seeing that lecture before they come together has taken on deeper meaning because when the students did come together, whether that was they were able to come on campus, you know, as we were ending the last year, however they were able, when they came together, they appreciated collaboration in a different way. They showed up ready to work with one another. They took those lessons very seriously to learn what they needed to learn on their own so that they could collaborate, whether it was in filmmaking, whether that, you know, how they work together as musicians, they really came ready to respect one another in that space. That is something that is a silver lining. And I think they'll never, they'll understand that sense of collaboration much deeper than they did before. One of the biggest silver linings for me, however, is that because our students come from all around the world, sometimes parents only come to campus one time, and that might be to bring their 14-year-old, and they may never come back. You know, it's expensive to come, or, you know, it, they just may never come back to campus. But now they were able to see all of the performances and all of the art presentations and exhibitions that their students were doing. They were able to see their artistic progress as a result they were able to see the growth and transformation, not just final projects. That is something that we never would have been able to deliver. And we would always make the excuse, which, you know, maybe it had some value that, oh, it's, it's, it's online, it's not as good, you can't really tell, you know. We don't have that anymore. It's almost as if the, the camera was that third eye, you know, it was part of the audience and the students have gotten used to that. And the parents, what a gift for them to to see the transformation of their children, to see the metamorphosis of that, not just the end of you know, what it looks like after four years 
of engaging that way. I absolutely love that they were able to do that. And that is a great silver lining. And, you know, technology is a great enabler and it has forced schools to to take brave new steps, try new things. There have been so many great success stories where it has changed because you force yourself to do that. And we teach our children to be brave, to try new things, to risk failure, to be able to come out of it and go, actually, it wasn't so bad. What, what were we worried about? Or, or it didn't quite work as well as we thought, but let, let's, how can we fix this and make it better? But ultimately, it's about telling your stories. You know, you're inspiring those kids, you're inspiring your teachers. And parents, they only care about their child and, you know, you being able to connect. And I think that's what I've seen over the last 12 months as well. The incredible stories. It's the small stories. It's not all the big success all schools talk about. It's the little stories that matter to me. And it's my child playing that, doing that, performing this. That's the bit that they're the memories that are just, you know, immeasurable in terms of value that hopefully schools are going to do more. So it's great that you're online and you're sharing all these things and you're making it more of a a hybrid approach. I mean, it kind of leads us on to, you know, we talked about community and 2020 has really taught us the kind of importance of being in a strong community. And you've demonstrated, you've, you've explained how that's really gone out to your parents as well. I kind of want to talk about how art has helped people deal with loneliness and stress because, you know, it's a really having a creative outlook and a way of being able to break away from the rigor of what you're doing to immerse yourself. We've certainly seen lots more people kind of immerse themselves in arts. Have you seen the same? We absolutely have. You know, I think that, you know, one of the great things was that, especially professional artists, they were out of work (laughs) and they needed to create. They needed to, you know, express what they were thinking and feeling. And they shared that with the world. We certainly were a part of that, you know, guest artists reaching out to our students. And I hope that we can always access that, right? We got off of the merry-go-round, you know, the treadmill of, I'm doing this, how much you got to pay for this? You know, what is this going to, you know, cost to get this done? Back to the sheer joy of sharing, of revealing, right? Of just being vulnerable. Professional artists really led the way with that. Young artists, young students, you know, who aren't yet professionals embrace that. And, um, I think that, you know, only time will tell really how much that helped us cope, how much it created communities that when necessary, we can rely on again. You know, we're all ready to get out of our house, you know, move into our spaces together. But there was something special there, too. You know, there was an intimacy through, you know, through Zoom calls that we grew tired of, but there was something there. I could meet with people around the world that I couldn't do that without traveling. I'm going to miss that if that goes away. You know, I think that art makes the invisible visible. And I think that we will be learning what was made visible, what came to the surface, what did we participate in? We'll be learning that in years to come. And I hope learning lessons from it and really keeping what was good about it and and building on that. I hope I don't stop meeting my brothers and sisters artists and arts educators around the world, you know, when we're able to move back into person. Yeah, because people need people, human contact, you know, it's just an innate thing that we need. And this while the digital has facilitated us staying, imagine this pre-digital, this kind of pandemic, it it would have been, uh, you know, catastrophic, really, education would have fallen over, businesses would have fallen over, 
because there was no way to do it. And it's we kind of like, we just reverted and adopted this new way of doing it. But I want to know what's going to kind of keep you inspired and motivated when working under such pressures as you've had of the last year. And obviously it's not over yet. I used to teach on a, a faculty for new heads of schools. And uh, one of the things that I would always tell them is what they say on an airline, put on your mask first before assisting others. And I think that educational leaders have really had to learn that, right? This was new to all of us, how we not just move us into this emergency situation, but how we sustain through this. For me, I have really had the wonderful opportunity um, with online communities. There is, I think it's called the Big Question Institute. And I kind of drop in on that sometimes. It's just an online community. Um, I did a book club, that book club would think again with Adam Grant. And it's been interesting to hear educators and educational leaders wrestle with the same kinds of things, no matter where they are in the world, right? Knowing that we don't want to go back to many of the trappings that we had, wherever we teach, public, private, we don't want to go back into some of those trappings and how we're wrestling together. And then uh, two very dear friends, Sam Shaltain and Trung Lee, they're running an online consortium called the Seed and Spark Expedition. And again, you know, where twice a week I'm able to go into those spaces with people from all around the world where, you know, friendships and relationships are actually forming, but we're feeding one another, not with answers, but with questions. No one has answers. No one. We have experiences and we have questions. And we have a vulnerability that we have allowed to take place in these spaces. Um, what I particularly love about the Seed Spark exhibition is that we start with some form of art, some form of live art, where someone is reading poetry or, or perhaps playing you know, an instrument or something like that to remind us or give us an ecosystem that we, are, that we can embrace to think through. So this is how, you know, in my COVID spaces, this is how I've been able to find others that are seeking a bold answer to how we come out of this and not just looking for ways to, I don't think anybody wants to return to the challenges that we know that we all want answers, but I really want to be with people who are looking for bold, out of the box, this is crazy making, you know, thinking about what we can do to go forward. Um, I like being in those kinds of environments. So I'm grateful that I found those online spaces. We've got to keep taking big risks and, and challenging the status quo and the norm because change doesn't happen by, by sitting on a fence. At some point, you have to get off the fence. You have to decide which way you're going to go and, and where you want to take it. We have the wonderful opportunity and responsibility to create the environment, the community that helps our students respond to these big questions of our time, of their time. I'm excited about that and playing a role, being so privileged to play a role in that in the lives of young people. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.